So Money episode 187, Paula Pant. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, welcome back to So Money, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. What did you think of yesterday's episode where I became the subject? I was the interviewee as opposed to the interviewer, and it was a lot of fun. It was a longer episode, so if you're used to a 30-minute show, apologize. It was actually a lot longer. I had to go back and edit it down, but it was a lot of fun. Joe Salcihai interviewed me. He's the co-host of Stacking Benjamins, and I think we uh, discovered some things, some things about me, things that I had forgotten about, uh, but it was all all good, all good and productive. So if you missed that episode, please check it out. Before we get to today's guest, I wanted to uh, let you all in on something that I'm trying to do with this podcast. I would love to, I had this sort of brainstorm the other day and I thought it would be nice to dedicate a week to the quote unquote millionaires next door. You might be one of them. You may know somebody who is. And, and so what is a, who is a millionaire next door exactly? Well, it's somebody who has a net worth of a million dollars or more and you'd never know it. Uh, they live very uh, modestly, perhaps. They're not flashy. They're not showy. They spend uh, in a way that is very much in, uh, in line with their values, and they don't care what other people do with their money. They like to do uh, with their money what they want to do, and they are kind of like the Mr. Money Mustaches and Mrs. Money Mustaches uh, around the country that, of course, people know who they are, but maybe there are more examples of, the, of those types of people who – are very smart with their money and have done very well for themselves, though on the outside, you might not think so. You may not seem so because when we think of millionaires, we think of people with gated homes and big fancy cars. And of course, you and I all both know that that's just a cliche. And, and a lot of times people who have that kind of a external appearance are sometimes struggling financially. So, uh, Appearances don't reveal everything, of course. But so anyway, I, I'm going on a tangent here. I would like to find, I'm doing a search uh, for the millionaires next door. And I want to get a diverse group, about five people, so I can spread them out during the week. And I want to dedicate a whole week to the millionaires next door. So really putting a spotlight on um, everyday Americans uh, who are are doing really well financially and have ex- have um, lessons to share. So that's just something that I'm looking to accomplish. And hopefully you can help me if you know someone or if you are this person, email me farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com and uh, we'll go from there. Today's guest is uh, someone who is here by popular demand. Uh, many of you have written in to me. Uh, and so you're going to be really excited to hear that today's guest is Paula Pant of the blog and movement Afford Anything. Paula is a self-proclaimed globe trotter, entrepreneur, and investor. She's traveled to 33 countries. How many countries have I visited? I mean, I can count it on my hands. I think maybe 10, um, which I think is a lot, but 
33. I got some catching up to do. On top of that, she owns seven rental properties and her blog, Afford Anything, is extremely popular. Paula's belief, which is why she's so popular, is that money can fuel your dreams. And it's about growing your wealth, not pinching pennies. Her blog is part of a larger movement to allow people to ditch their nine to five lifestyle and master their money to embark on their dreams. And for Paula, her dream while a while ago was to travel. It still is. And she's pursuing this dream. But initially, it was just a pie in the sky. How can I get out there and travel more and see more of the world? She was a newspaper editor, a reporter. She found her work fun, but it wasn't enough. She wasn't going after what she really wanted, her passion. And so what did she do? She quit her job. And eventually, she started traveling a lot and took a two and a half year, I guess, hiatus from working. And from there, she launched affordanything.com where she chronicles her, just her thoughts, her insights, her experiences with money. And it's brilliant. And I'm really excited to have her on the show. Three takeaways from our conversation, how she managed to save enough money to last her, what she says is three years so she could travel the world when she quit her job. She did this on, by the way, a reporter's income, saving all that money. Paula's so-called 1% rule that helps her figure out whether an investment property is actually worth it and better than just putting the money in the stock market. And finally, her strong case for investing in index funds and passive investing. There is an ongoing debate about passive versus active investing. If you listen to this show enough, you know that here we celebrate passive investing, index funds, exchange-traded funds. I, for one, cannot beat the market. Um, I don't pretend like I can. I don't pretend like other people can either. And Paula adds to that uh, debate, supporting the idea of passive investing and something that she kind of uh, grew into. She didn't always have this mantra. So it's interesting to talk to her about that. And here we go. Without further ado, here is Paula Pant. Paula Pant, welcome to So Money, uh, a highly sought after guest, a, a listener's choice, I should say, here with us. Very excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. So, Paula, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now. We first connected over my book, I believe, mm -hmm. um, When She Makes More. I interviewed you for that as you are mm -hmm. in a relationship where you make more and uh, had some great advice uh, for other couples seeking happiness with this sort of a financial dynamic. And outside of that world, you are also a blogger extraordinaire. You're at uh, affordanything.com. Also, you're just a really dynamic, cool, world-traveled, uh, savvy person. You've got, now I'm looking at your bio here, you've got um, seven rental properties, I do. Seven, seven rental units. Seven rental units. You've traveled to 33 countries. Uh, and I love, I love on your site, afford anything. You say you can, you can't afford you, everything, you but afford, you can afford anything. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You can afford anything, but not everything. Er anything, but not everything. Thank you. <laughs> so tell me how this, well, first I'm curious about the blog. How did that come about? What were you doing in life that trend, that that transpired a blog? Because I think a lot of my listeners are interested in getting into the blogosphere or maybe finding their niche online, their voice mm -hmm. online. How did you decide to do a blog and why this particular niche? So I started blogging because I uh, decided to travel. And uh, I a lot of my friends kept asking, 
how can you afford to do it? Or worse, they would say, I would love to do it, but I can't afford that. And I wanted to really spread the message that you can afford to do anything. Like we can't, you can't afford everything, but you can afford anything. Um, and so when I started traveling, um, I quit my nine to five job in 2008. And at the time I had enough money to live on for three years. What? Three yeah. years. <laughs> well, okay. Let's, let's take a pause here and, and dissect okay. this part. Cause I'm really curious. We always say, you know, have six to nine months of savings in case you want to, you know, leave your job or you do get laid off. How did you, at what point did you decide you wanted to start traveling and were working towards quitting and then somehow amass three years worth of living expenses? So uh, to the first part of the question, or what, at what point did I make that decision? I actually decided that before I even started the job. Um, mm-hmm. I'd always dreamt of As a of newspaper tra- reporter, right? Exactly. Yes, I was a newspaper reporter. And um, I'd always, when I was in college, I'd always dreamt of traveling, but, uh, and I wanted to study abroad, but those programs were so expensive. Like a study, a, a semester ab- overseas was maybe fifteen or $20,000. And I thought about it and I realized, yeah, I don't really want to study. I just want to go abroad. <laughs> um, so I realized that the cheapest way to do that would just be to to not work. Um, at the time, I didn't realize that there were location independent jobs. So I figured I would just, you know, not work and travel. But before I did that, I first had to get a job and save up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was how I did it. I, I lived on my day job income. Um, of course, I put money into a 401k and an FSA and all of that. But um, I lived on the income from my day job. And then during evenings and weekends, I would write freelance articles for magazines. And um, I saved 100% of that freelance money after taxes and and amassed enough that I could live for three years, assuming that I spent a lot of that time in countries where the dollar exchange rate worked in my favor. Okay, gotcha. So this wasn't actually, had you stayed in America, uh, you would probably, it might have been more like a year's. A year, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, it probably would have been one year in the U.S., but in Thailand uh, mm-hmm. or Laos or Cambodia or, you know, but I've spent most of that time in Southeast Asia, uh, it stretched a lot further. And did you spend three years in those countries? I spent two and a half um, in about half of that time was in Southeast Asia. And then uh, about half of it was in Australia with little bits of, you know, like six weeks in Europe and a couple of weeks right. in, the, in the Middle East and, you know, various other places. And what was your goal during this exploration? Was it to just broaden your horizons? Were you searching for something? Were you uh, what was your plan when you were kind of come back? Were you, did you just start blog- blogging while you were traveling? Share a little bit about that journey and, and how you made it really productive for yourself. Sure. Uh, I didn't really have a, a travel-related goal per se. I, I really just wanted to broaden my horizons. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best way to, to say it. I grew up, um, I was born in Kathmandu, Nepal, and I grew up in Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio. And throughout my childhood, I went back and forth between those two places, which might make me sound worldly, except that my like limited worldview was that, you know, the earth is no bigger than Ohio and Nepal. <laughs> um, and so I, I knew um, just, I guess, from having a little international exposure, I knew that there was more world out there um, and I wanted to see it. And so when you came back and you came back after two and a half years, what, what was the mm-hmm. first thing you did? 
uh, I had decided that I wanted to be self-employed. So, um, and because I had had that experience of freelancing sort of as a, as a side hustle or as a side gig back when I was a newspaper reporter, I thought, well, let's see if I can do this full time. And so I, um, I didn't know how to start. I used like the last of my savings to buy a laptop. <laughs> and, um, in the beginning, I, I had a couple of contacts from back when I was a, a newspaper reporter and back when I used to freelance, um, but I mean, that didn't really pan out to very much. So I, I really started from scratch. And in the beginning, I was, um, you know, earning just ridiculously low sums for each article. But over time, it, it grew and it developed. And so uh, what led you to affordanything.com? How did that evolve? So that came about because a lot of my friends were saying, um, I'd love to do that. I'd love to travel, but I can't afford it. And yet, these were friends who lived in much nicer homes than I did. They drove nicer cars. They wore nicer clothes. They went out to eat more. They partied more. Um, and, you know, so my response was, well, you can afford it. You just choose not to. And, and if that is a conscious choice, that's fine. You know, if you sit down and think to yourself, do I want to do X, whether that X is travel or, or whatever else it might be, you know, do I want to do X or do I want this nice, this home and car and clothes? Mm -hmm. And if you choose that it's the home and car and clothes, that's awesome. Good for you. You've made, you've set your priorities. You know what your decision is. Um, but to say I can't afford it is so disempowering. And I really wanted to, to share a much more empowering message around money that, that you have these choices and that every dollar you spend is a trade off. So you were living this this ideal you're, uh, for yourself on your own. People were inspired by it. And finally, you were like, you know what? I'm just going to start a WordPress site, <laughs> or whatever exactly. it was, and and uh, put pen to paper or, you know, uh, start typing and share. You actually had, it turns out, a lot to say about this topic. And you have since, uh, how many years ago was this now? A few years? Four years ago. Four years ago. And since mm -hmm. four years ago, you've become one of the most popular financial bloggers out there. How has this changed you, changed your life, changed your perspective? You've probably connected with so many new people as a result. We've connected through this. That's mm -hmm. kind of one of the great things about blogging. People think that it's like the secret thing you do in your, you know, your, your basement or your home and you don't, <laughs> you're very isolated. Although, yes, and that's one aspect of the job. It's a very singular job. But then at the same time, you know, there are a lot of connections that you make through it as well. Absolutely. I've, I've met so many incredible people and I've, I've learned a lot more about money as I've gone through this process. And, and that's been, that's kind of happened on two fronts. Part of it is that when you, when you write about money, you tend to read about money a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I've read all of, all of these different theories and strategies and philosophies and, and ideas that I'd never really been introduced to before I started just, you know, reading and writing and thinking about it every day. How do you, I'm sure this is something that my listeners are, are thinking, and I'm going to channel my listeners right now and ask the question, how mm -hmm. do you monetize your blog for mm -hmm. yourself? So a lot of it, um, a lot of the way that I monetize it is, is actually a little indirect. Um, other companies who want to grow their own blogs will contact me and ask for my help, um, sort of consulting services in that regard. 
um, they'll ask me to help them develop their own websites. And so I work with probably about a dozen clients who, um, and who need help doing anything from, um, you know, developing a, a content strategy to, you know, figuring out what they're doing on social media. Cause so many people, you know, they're, they're new to it and it's not their area of expertise. They're financial planners or they're real estate brokers. Um, and so they're like, what are we doing here? And I can sort of help guide them through that. Very cool. That's sort of very behind the scenes. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that. I thought maybe you do affiliate links or you have sponsorships, but that's actually really smart and very, you know, that's, that's an example of making money by, uh, from what you know, as opposed to just what you do. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, well, I like, wow. I like that. I learned that from one like of that. my guests. I can't, <laughs> I can't say I, I, I made that up, but, uh, yeah, there's, I learned along the way doing this podcast, there are two ways to make money in this world. One is making money from what you do, which is, you know, just the, whether it's blogging or, um, teaching, being a lawyer, and then there's making money from what you know, which is a whole other world of things because as individuals, as human beings, when walking this earth, we've learned a lot that may not be at all related to what we do, or maybe somewhat related to what we do, but there is also a way to monetize that. So for me, it's like, you know, what I do is I, I podcast, I write books, I speak, I, you know, do all sorts of media related things, but I also know the industry, the sort of behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I've gone through so many steps, launching books, launching podcasts, launching a career in media that I feel as though I can now coach people who want to follow a similar path. And it has nothing to do with personal finance, Mm -hmm. but it is what I know. And same with you. I see, you know, you're teaching people the kind of inner workings, the behind the scenes, the engineering of creating a, a podcast, uh, sorry, a website. It's nothing related to personal finance necessarily, mm-hmm. but it is as it is tangential to what you do. Absolutely. So that's very smart. Awesome. All right. So now that you have uh, experienced this website, affordanything.com, and you've met so many people, you've read so much. Let's let's transition now to some so money questions so I can pick your brain and learn a little bit more from you. And so can my listeners. What is your number one financial philosophy, Paula? I, w- I would say that it is you can afford anything, but not everything. Um, you know, and, and I've seen that theme repeated in my own life again and again and again. Share an example with us. Besides, in addition to the story about traveling, is there anything else maybe um, you can stem from your experiences as a real estate investor? What are, what's mm-hmm. another example of how you have been able to afford anything, not everything? Sure. Well, when I first, when I bought my first investment property, um, we were, that was shortly after we had come back from traveling. And so we didn't have much money. We were being very scrappy, uh, and lean. And so, um, so what we did, we bought a triplex and moved into one of the units with roommates. Um, and you know, between the rental income that we were getting from our roommates and plus our, um, you know, plus renting out the other two units, we lived quote unquote for free, meaning that we mm-hmm. had no out of pocket housing costs. I put that in air quotes because obviously there's an opportunity cost that comes from us taking up that space. But, you know, we didn't pay any money out of pocket for housing. And, um, you know, here we are. My my partner, Will, is, you know, he was in his 30s at the time and I was approaching 30. And again, it's very at that age, it was fairly abnormal to be living with roommates. And so a lot of our friends were saying, why don't you act like grownups? You know, why Mm -hmm. don't you get a place of your own? 
And, um, you know, in a perfect, in an ideal world, if we could afford everything, we probably would have done that. But we realized that we had a choice. Um, we could, you know, sort of uh, inflate our lifestyle to the next level, or we could aggressively save and keep buying investment properties and sort of continue to live lean for a few years while we are building our investments. Um, you know, it was that trade-off. You could, we could afford one or the other, but mm-hmm. not both. So which is it going to be? And you did this with your partner? Yes. Yeah. With, uh, with Will. With Will. How did those conversations go? You were lucky that you met somebody that had a similar, uh, had similar goals. Yeah. Yeah. And we've values. always, we've always been very much on the same page in terms of that. You know, he's always been, um, he's, he's always been the type of person who, who looks for opportunity and, um, you know, he, like me, like none of, neither of us really started from that much, but we've always been very, just very scrappy and very willing to work hard and, and hustle. And, um, um, yeah, I don't know. It's scrappy. Just, scrappy. <laughs> I like that word. Um, how long did it take before that trade-off paid off? It, we've been investing in rental properties for five years now. Um, averaging roughly one house a year. Um, so we, we started with the triplex. Those were the first three units. And then we've added one new unit each year um, since then for, for a total of seven. And I would say that it's really been probably in the last two years that um, we've started to see uh, that we've, I'd say, hit financial independence from it, mm-hmm. meaning that the net income from that those investments after expenses um, could cover our entire. Um, and so that's actually reasonably quick. Uh, a lot of times financial independence takes a lot longer. For, for most people, it, it takes at least, I'd say, 10 years, if not more. Uh, you know, we were you know, fortunate in two ways. One in that we found great investments that, that paid off for us really well. And, um, and, and how do you identify, uh, sorry to interrupt, but how do you identify uh, an investment that's going to pay off? Well, what are the, maybe the top two things you look for in any rental investment? So number one is I use this kind of back of the envelope formula that that's called the 1% rule. Do tell. Okay. I'm writing this down. Uh, cool. <laughs> awesome. Everyone, if you're not driving, get out your pens. Right. <laughs> or re, re, re-listen to this when you get home. Yeah. <laughs> so I, the 1% rule is super simple to do. It's just simple math that you can do in your head, which is why I like it. And it is that the gross rental income should be at least 1% of the total acquisition price. Now, I've just thrown a bunch of really big words at you. So let me break that down. Um, by acquisition price of a property, I'm referring to uh, the purchase price plus closing costs plus any upfront repairs that you need to do in order to make it move in. Um, so I'm not talking about like repairs five years down the road, but mm-hmm. any of those those upfront costs. So that's all total acquisition price, right? So let's say, just to use a very basic number, let's say that the acquisition price for a property is $100,000, it needs to rent for at least 1% of that or $1,000 per month. Gotcha. So and if the property is 
$200,000, it should rent for $2,000 a month. And mathematically, why does this work out? So there's another called the 50% rule. Um, and that basically states that roughly half of your gross revenue is going to go towards operating expenses. And by operating expenses, I'm including everything from uh, repairs, maintenance, property management fees, uh, bookkeeping and accounting fees, um, vacancy, you know, like mm-hmm. losses from. Uh, so roughly, roughly half of that will get consumed by that the 50% rule of thumb. Um, if, if you're earning 1% gross revenue per month, that means you're earning 12% a year, right? Right. And if you're netting half of that, then you're netting 6% a year. Mm -hmm. And then if the property rises in value at roughly, let's say the rate of inflation, we'll say it just keeps pace with inflation and no more. Um, that's another inflation is like two, three percent um, on a normal annually. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that means that your total um, profit from that, your total gain from that investment would be eight to nine. In a put in phrased in a slightly different way, your real returns would be about six percent. Right after right. you know inflation, and so that basically puts it on par with. Um, with the historic performances of index funds over the long run. Oh, so now we're getting to the, the, the we've come, I feel like now we're getting to like the, oh, moment. It's like, oh, exactly. What is this all pegged to? Oh, index funds. Gotcha. <laughs> and so the thing is, if you can't get at least eight to nine percent over the long term, then why not just be in an index fund instead? You know, and and of course there are people who will disagree with that, and they'll say, "Well, the power of real estate is that you can leverage it, so you have higher cash on cash returns." Um, I don't like to really emphasize that because I don't like to, you know, encourage people to to be leverage happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to look at, you know, what would the return on this investment be, assuming that it's an all cash deal? How does that compare to an index fund? And you know, if, if I'm getting less than the performance of just putting it in a Vanguard fund, I'm just going to do that. Right. And this is all sort of the kind of math that you could potentially do, at least ballpark estimates, before bidding on an, apart- on an apartment. Like, you can do the research. You can figure out the market rates for rent. You can mm-hmm. figure out, you know, uh, just roughly what kind of TLC the apartment will need before it is rent ready. Um, mm-hmm. to do this math, right? You don't have to, you don't, this is something like you, you would do after the fact. Oh yeah. No, you, you do it right up front. Like once, once you get serious about a property, um, then you start really scrutinizing specific numbers. But I mean, if you're looking, let's say in a particular zip code or in a particular neighborhood, you probably already have a pretty good idea of what rents are in that neighborhood. What is a one bedroom rent for? What about a two bedroom or a three bedroom? Um, So right off the bat, you can pretty quickly look at the cost of a property and and have a decent idea um, of whether or not it'll fit the 1% rule. And, And typically there tend to be certain neighborhoods that have where you have a lot more properties that fit this and then certain neighborhoods where you don't. Are you primarily getting properties in Ohio or uh, are you going all over the country, all over the world? 
So all of mine are in uh, in Atlanta. Oh, you moved. Mm-hmm. That's right. I did. Yeah. So I grew up in Ohio. I lived in Colorado for a couple, for about eight years. Then I moved to Atlanta. And just uh, recently, I moved to Las Vegas. So oh. I'm a little bit all over the map. When I last saw you at FinCon, I think you said you were contemplating Atlanta or San Diego. You really wanted to be near water. Yes. Yeah. San Diego. I was trying to figure out where to move. That's one of the cool things about just being location independent. And I'm like, where do I want to move? And Will's okay know. with all the relocation? Yeah, he loves the desert. Loves it. Oh, he's wow. A, he's originally from Colorado, so he's like very happy to be back out west. Well, I'm so happy for you guys. Sounds like you really found your match. And this is quite the dive into your real estate mind. You're an entrepreneur, right? You don't consider yourself like a blogger first or a real estate investor first. You're mm-hmm. really Paula Pant, entrepreneur, capital E. And then there's a bunch of things that fall underneath that. Exactly. Exactly. I'm Love a hustler, baby. You're a hustler, baby. Uh, let's move on. We've spent a lot of time on that first philosophy question and that transitioned us into real estate tricks and hacks, which I love. Um, This is why I love the podcast, because while the show is formatted to an extent, I have these sort of canned questions. Uh, You never know. You never know where the show's going (laughs) to take you. Let's, uh, I'd love to learn more about your, your, your childhood, Paula, and talking about how you were exposed to money growing up. And the question really is, what is your biggest money memory growing up as a kid that you feel was very influential in how you uh, see money today as an adult? Sure. Um, So this is this is a double edged sword. Right. So my parents were very frugal. We were we were immigrants. Um, My dad taught classes at the local college. My mom was a stay at home mom. And so um, they they had to be very scrappy. There's that word again. <laughs> um, and so what my mom would do in order to make a financial contribution to the household uh, in her own way is that she would sit at the dining table with stacks and stacks of newspapers um, and just sit there and she would spend hours clipping coupons from all of these papers and sorting them into different piles based on like store location and expiration date and all of that. She had some very complex system of exactly how to like how to coupon. Um, and then she would spend the whole afternoon, literally five or six hours, uh, driving from store to store to store, getting bananas at one store and milk at the next store and uh, bread at the next one. Like she knew exactly what was cheapest at which store, and um, I mean, she she had all of that kind of mm-hmm. systematized and mm-hmm. stored in her head. And that was um, one of my first kind of lessons around money because. You know, I, I was always home with her, and so I was always seeing her do that, and she would take me with her. Um, and that was both – it was a mixed lesson. It was both good and bad. Um, and I say it, it was good because in the days when I needed to be frugal and in the days when I had more time than money, um, you know, I would do to a lesser extent the same thing. You know, I, I would go to maybe two different stores and I would know what was cheaper at which one. And I wasn't, you know, I, I was always very conscientious of that. Um, but it was, it was also a mixed lesson because when I became an entrepreneur, I had to let go of that. I had to learn to put a value on my time. And that was extremely difficult because that required unlearning the past, you know, 18, the first 18 years of my life of, of seeing that example. Yeah. And because you, 
for to you it was it was very it was a very restricting approach to money management, right? It was a very limited approach. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The focus was entirely on, you know, there's money is there's, you can earn more or you can spend less. Like at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to those two things. Right. And the example that I saw was always focused around the spend less side of the equation. Um, and in, in one sense, that's good because, you know, it, it's nice. It's good to be conscientious about what you're spending. On the other hand, um, it was difficult for me to learn the power of focusing on the earn more side of the equation. Uh, and I've, I've really had to, to force myself to focus on that. And that's a big part of why I talk about that a lot on Afford Anything is I, in part, I'm, I'm speaking to my younger self. Yeah. Yeah. And you're keeping yourself in check. <laughs> in a way. Exactly. Don't fall back on these couponing ways, Paula. Exactly. <laughs> Well, what's been your biggest failure? Would would you even say you had a failure, a financial failure, or to a lesser degree, maybe just something that you regretted or a misstep? Maybe you, your first rental property, you weren't getting 1% a month in rent. Um, you learned that the hard way. What, 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 what is an example of something in that, in that uh, category? Sure. Well, um, so when I was saving up to go travel, when I, back in the days when I was a newspaper reporter, um, that was during the height of that was that was when the bubble was good. Like that was when the market was just on a bull run and everybody was feeling rich. And um, and you at that time, you could just sort of throw money into the market and it would like explode and, and make these big gains. Uh, and so I treated the stock market like it was a high yield savings account. Um, you know, I, I didn't. Everyone said risk is tied to reward. And when I would hear that sentence, I was like, reward? <laughs> Did you just say reward? <laughs> Did you say that there's only upside and no downside? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, our good friend Jeff Rose, we, a CFP and a blogger, doesn't like index funds. And a uh, guest on my sh- uh, he was not a guest on my show yet, although I should probably get him on the show mm-hmm. and question him about this. But since you're such a fan of index funds, give me give me your take on why like if you had to be de- debating with Jeff, even though he's not here, what, why do you like <laughs> index funds so much? And what about this this hate on index funds that's out there? Mm. Well, so I will say that I am way too lazy to actually study individual stocks. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I admire the people who do, but the, to really take the time to understand an individual stock uh, that's a, that's a part-time job. That's a, that's its own side hustle because you've got to read the quarterly earnings reports and you've got to read the balance sheets and, um, and really understand what you're going into, what you're investing in. And if you're willing to take that time to do that, if you're willing to make that a job, then that's great. But if you're not, um, then it's better to just put your money in a diversified basket of funds. Mm-hmm. And so if, if that's what you're going to do, then you've got kind of two choices, mutual funds or index funds. And I'm, I'm using index funds as sort of the catch-all term that also includes ETFs or right. exchange-traded funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your choice is between actively managed funds, like a mu- an actively managed mutual fund versus a passively managed fund, there is no statistical data to support the idea 
the actively managed funds outperform. So uh, that's that's basically a fancy way of saying you're paying additional fees for no additional benefit. Right, right. And interest, and I totally agree with you. And I think now thinking about it, the only people that I have known to be really supportive of actively managed funds are people who are professional financial planners or or advisors or investors. So mm-hmm. they are doing this full time and perhaps can and have the bandwidth and the knowledge and the experience and the interest to do so for themselves and their clients. But like you and I, we got we got stuff to do. Yeah. We got things to we got to take names and travel and buy investment properties. So yeah. um, when I say we, I mean you. See. Yeah. <laughs> and people to go places to go, people to see. Exactly. So I'm I'm also for index funds. And I, I, I like the digression here because I think it's important just as we are talking so much about we you brought it up. So I'm going to ask it. I'm going to ask about <laughs> index funds. Um, so success, Paula, your so mm-hmm. money moment. What was it? What happened? Let's let's do a little humble brag. <laughs> a financial success that I had. Um, saving up for that trip was probably like my my first and biggest financial success. And I know that that might sound weird because I've had in terms of raw dollars, I've had bigger successes since then um, with the investment properties and with, you know, but but to that that initial success of just saying of setting a goal and then achieving it. Uh, gave me so much confidence, especially at, at that age. Um, yeah, that that was that was just invaluable. All right, let's talk about a habit now. Let's transition and mm-hmm. share one of your. I assume you have a couple or a few, but what your favorite habit that correlates to financial success for you? Tracking my net worth. And how um, do you do that? What do you use a special app or tool? Um, I'm super old fashioned. I use uh, an Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. I like Excel too. I took a course in Excel in college, so I feel like oh, I have to put thanks. that to use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excel, Excel is great. I'm not like as good at it. You know, you you meet like engineers who can do all these like crazy fancy things with it, and I'm like, uh, I, I can I can add and subtract, guys. I'm, I'm um, going through a little bit of a. <laughs> Like I have this, so right now we're renovating and I'm pouring a lot of money into this renovation project and all the ancillary costs, including the sublet, the movers, the storage, the, you know, eating out because we don't really have mm-hmm. much of a setup here in the sublet. Um, and seeing my bank account, like just go down, 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 <laughs> down, 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 yeah. And I'm just like, okay, I know, I know this is in the long run going to pay off because when we sell the place, it's going to be worth a lot, and we're going to also not, you know, we're we're going to enjoy the home too. We're not going to have to move. We can kind of buy our buy our time here in in Brooklyn at a much more affordable rate than like building and or going into a higher uh, a bi- a bigger house and and spending mm-hmm. lots more. So I. I'm checking my net worth and I'm just like, oh no, but give me, <laughs> give me some reassurance, Paula, cause you're, you know, you're the real estate guru. I mean, mm-hmm. my friend once said to me, she said, Farnoosh, what's the point of having money? You don't just like, I mean, I get pleasure from just seeing my money sit in the bank account. That's me. Yeah, um, I do too. I know. And she's like, but that's, you work hard for your money, not so that you can just sit there. Like you, you know, and, and just to an extent, you shouldn't have so much money sitting there. My financial advisor is like, do something with this cash. But I have this phobia. Like I have money in investments and I feel like I'm doing enough in those categories, but I, I like having the cash on hand. Like if I could keep my cash under my mattress, <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I like, I like knowing that security. It's a security 
security blanket for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have to just trust that this investment with the real estate project that we're going under is going to going through is going to pay off. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is a certain that there is a wisdom in allowing yourself to enjoy your money. Um, like money is money is a tool. Like at the end of the day, that's all it is. Um, you know, there there are all of these these cliches like money can't buy happiness or money is the root of all evil. Um, and they all, in my opinion, kind of miss the point because uh, a hammer is not evil. It's just a tool and you can use it to either build a house or smash your thumb. Um, and that's exactly what money is. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just a tool, no different than a hammer or anything else. Yeah. And so, you know, if for you, you can buy some peace of mind by knowing that you you have cash in your bank account, there's value in that. Like there's value in the fact that you can sleep more easily at night knowing that you have that. Um, you know, that, I mean, that being said, obviously you shouldn't have like, too much cash. Yes. You know, you be yeah. in investments and, and things like things of that nature. And you should also spend some and allow yourself to enjoy it. Um, oh, I yeah. do. Don't worry about that. Yeah, I'm a little too much sometimes. But yeah, totally get what you're saying. I know. It's just, uh, I think seeing so much of it disappear within such a short period of time. <laughs> but I'm like, what else was I going to do with this money? You know, I would have just gone to spend more money on dinners and I wouldn't have realized how I spent it over the next couple of years. Instead, at least I know this is the money that I spent on this you know, big project. Um, and it, and it will be emotionally, at least it will be a big payoff. Psychologically it'll be a big payoff. And I think I trust that financially it will also be a big payoff in when we go to sell. Uh, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So Paula, if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is buy a bunch of apartment complexes. (laughs) Yes, you would. (laughs) Is there a particular, Part of the country that you're you're eyeing on, or you're 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 interested in, as far as real estate, like where do you, where where are the opportunities? Um, I I love the the Midwest, the South, and then basically the, all the inland communities. Um, the coasts tend both of the coasts tend to be a little more expensive, but uh, there are so many opportunities in, um. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, uh, Arizona, Nevada, um, some parts of Ohio. It just, there's, there's just so much going on. Um, Southern Idaho, there's a lot. There's, you know, I, I like opportunity is not the, um, missing ingredient here. You know, if I, if, if I had that, if I had the capital, I would be like, purchasing apartment complexes everywhere. Yeah, I mean, just here in Brooklyn, uh, we've got three a- complexes going up on my street alone. Oh, nice! They they estimate five thousand new families in the next couple of years. Wow, five thousand, and we have one school, one wow. public elementary school in our in our district in our little zone. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen with that. They've got to build more stuff and resources, like at least the grocery store, more grocery stores, please. Wow. In case any yeah. Brooklyn developers are listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> awesome. All right. You know, with my hundred million, Farnoosh, yeah. I would build a grocery store there. Oh, thank you. And I would be a patron. <laughs> the, <laughs> the one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Well, okay. I'm probably not supposed to say this, but having an assistant. Why are you oh supposed my to goodness. say that? I have an assistant. 
<laughs> well, I realize it might like sound alienating uh, to some listeners or sound all highfalutin or whatever, but wow, it's completely changed my life. Like I, I divide my entrepreneurial life into like the pre-assistant versus post-assistant era. And what? And you what's know? the biggest difference? Time, more time in your time. hands. Time, mm-hmm. absolutely. And time, and I, I've kind of touched on how tough of a lesson this was for me to learn, but time is your most valuable asset. Um, you know, you can never, you can, you can always have more money. You can, you can never get more time. So, um, so value it. You know, we treat money as though it's precious and time as though it's, um, as to be wasted. Yeah, exactly. Oh yes. Yes. I was just telling my husband yesterday, I was like, if I was only a morning person, and maybe that's just the story I tell myself, like, I'm not a morning person, so there's no way that I could get up at 5 a.m. and do a workout. I feel like the, the days that I do wake up early because I went to bed at like 7 o'clock the night before and my mm-hmm. body just has had enough sleep and it wasn't so intentional, I get so much done. I write, I, I run, I run errands. I By 8 o'clock, I feel like I've done more than I did. I would have done had I woken up at 10 or 9 yeah. or 8 I'm not getting up at 10 a.m. I'm just saying (laughs) that was a bad example. But, oh, man, I wish I could just get my body up sooner. I need to get my body down sleeping earlier. That's what has to happen. Yeah. Well, actually, I just just made that transition. And you know how I did it? Hmm, Tell me. I moved to the West Coast. And so my body is still adjusted to to Eastern time. So I naturally wake up at like six in the morning. So you literally moved. Okay. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think I could do that. Although I know, I know what you mean. Cause when I visit my parents out in California, um, that is one benefit as I get up early. And, um, of course I'm all screwed up when I get back home. Um, yeah. But, uh, all right. I'll, uh, I'll, con- you, you know what you could, you, what you could do? Just go, go spend some time in Europe. Go, go on like yeah. a long vacation. <laughs> jet lag. <laughs> Just get some jet lag. Exactly. <laughs> Go spend like two weeks in France, and then when you get back, you'll still totally be, be adjusted to that time zone, and then just stay adjusted to that yeah, time zone. Yeah, and then zone. somehow um, get off all coffee and just do that. All right. <laughs> oh, no. Stay, stay on the coffee. Stay on the coffee. Okay. Um, let's go on to our next fill-in-the-blank question. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on is? Travel. Of I mean, course. you you saw how I just justified a trip to France, didn't you? <laughs> yes. Um, more sleep, better better sleep hours, mm-hmm. and exactly. also the, the euro is very very good right now. Yeah, the euro is doing great. The yeah, this is this is the time this to go. Is, I know a lot of people that are are doing just even four day trips to Paris and uh, mm. coming back. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up, and you kind of touched on this earlier, mm-hmm. is is that. You can make more of it, mm-hmm. you know, so don't f- freak out if you lose some, either through through a bad spending decision or through a bad investment. Uh, it's it's OK. There will be more. There's more where that came from. Indeed. Exactly. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because. So lately I've been interested in disaster relief and particularly um, the the Nepal earthquake. Um, so in April, there was a huge earthquake in Nepal. There, uh, The death toll is somewhere around 10,000 people. Oh, my gosh. And um, Did you, How is your family over there? Oh, they're fine. Mm-hmm. They're totally fine, fortunately. But um, it's estimated that one in every 10 
houses were destroyed. So about 10% of the houses in the country. So, um, yeah, so Nepal is going through a very tough time right now. Mm. Uh, great. That's good to hear. And have you, are you planning to travel back there anytime soon? Yeah, well, I was thinking about maybe going there in the fall or winter. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any, like, date, I don't have the ticket booked yet, but I would like to to get back there pretty soon. And I have a, um, I have a, a cousin who is, she's there right now and she's, she runs a very small nonprofit group. Um, and so she's there kind of boots on the ground every single day trying, trying to get supplies. Um, glucose water is the big thing. Like if you can get people glucose water, you get, you give them another day. Wow. So, um, you know, she's, she's trying to get that out to particularly the villages where, there are big landslides, and so access to these villages is cut off because mm-hmm. the landslides have covered the roads, and so it's just very hard to get um, relief aid to to people in remote areas. All right, that's so good of you. Um, uh, all right, we are almost wrapped here, and before we go, I can't not wrap this. I can't wrap this without asking you this question or having you finish <laughs> the sentence. I'm Paula Pant, and I'm so money because. I am Paula Pant and I am so money because I don't let money concerns stop me from living the life of my dreams. Hi. Five, Paula. <laughs> I love that you just, you really brought it to this interview. I love when guests come prepared, excited, passionate, good storytelling. You did all of the above and more. And um, also, I'm proud to say you are a, you are a fan favorite around here. So um, listeners, I'm giving you Paula Pant. If you have other bloggers that you'd like to hear from or other, um, just other interesting people that you'd like to learn from, um, let me know, because that's that's what I'm here for. I'm here to connect you with the people that you want to hear from. And Paula, thank you f- so much for joining us and being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you. I'm super happy to be here. This is a lot of fun. And I know you are interested in embarking on a podcast, and I very much encourage you to do so. I think you'd have a massive following. I will send lots of listeners your way. So keep us posted on that, and we'll awesome. have you back when that launches. I'm going to keep you accountable. Thank you. Yes, please do. (laughs) Thanks so much, Paula. All right. Thank you, Farnoosh. That's a wrap, everyone. If you'd like to learn more about Paula, her website is affordanything.com. She's on Twitter at affordanything. We've got the transcript and comments from this episode over at somoneypodcast.com. And there, as always, you can ask me a question about money, obviously, or it could be about work. It could be about babies. It could be about dating. It could be about law school and whether you should go. I have a lot of opinions and I share them freely on this show. Take them or leave them. Every Saturday and Sunday, I respond to your questions. So when you hop onto somanypodcast.com, click on the handy dandy Ask Farnoosh tool widget thingy, and there you can submit your question. And if you would like to win a free 15-minute money session with me, hop on over to iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to get a free 15-minute money session with me. And I have been doing this now for well over a few months. Love it. Love connecting with you guys. And so if this interests you, please, I encourage you to do it. It would mean a lot to me to have your review. And I would try to um, do my best to connect with you. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day and your weekend is so money. Money.